Have you ever shared something online that turned out not to be true? I have. In fact, not that long ago, I shared a photo of an adorable horse named Sugar, who supposedly pretends to be asleep to avoid being ridden. That photo was shared over 40,000 times on Twitter, and I thought, well, it must be true. But, as it turns out, Sugar was just taking a nap. Okay, so mistakes happen. But misinformation at scale can also be really dangerous, especially when it relates to our democracies. Online disinformation has reached new highs because it's not just a human problem, it's an algorithmic problem too. One that's exploited by murky political forces in your country and in mine, in all of our elections, in different languages, in different political contexts. Are platforms doing enough to fight it? These companies have not allocated enough resources to protecting all elections at once, much less societies between elections. Because if you're paying attention to a country three weeks before the vote happens, the die is cast. Malicious people have spent a year creating, you know, soccer fan pages that they slowly politicize. That's Sahar Masachi. He used to be a data engineer on Facebook's integrity team, working on elections. We'll hear more from him in a bit. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla, the nonprofit behind Firefox. This season, five episodes on the perils and promise of artificial intelligence for the internet and in real life. We're meeting AI builders and policy folks who make AI more trustworthy in this special season that doubles as Mozilla's 2022 Internet Health Report. This time, it's AI, elections, and disinformation. How can we create healthier information ecosystems? Tracking disinformation is about unraveling mysteries. It's about spotting clues and patterns that can lead you to its source. Let's meet someone who works on dismantling disinformation across more than 20 countries. And no, it's not an employee of Twitter, Facebook, or TikTok. It's Justin Arnstein, the founder and chief executive of Code for Africa. This is Africa's largest network of civic tech and open data groups. It includes investigative reporters, fact-checking groups, and data scientists. Whether it be things around climate or around religion or around kind of reproductive issues and gender rights, you can hire sophisticated, small, agile teams who then are able to build campaigns for you, including creating fake accounts that kind of reference each other and look like and and function like coherent communities um, and suck people in and build quite a bit of momentum. Justin is from South Africa. He's currently based in Tbilisi, Georgia. He wants us to understand that there is a global industry of disinformation for hire worth tens of millions of dollars. Like a well-oiled machine, these networks make fake content and lots of it. More importantly, they create artificial surges of attention on topics. They use bots and networked social media accounts. They post content in a way that's designed to game social media algorithms, which in turn amplify these messages. Eventually, humans and media organizations begin to genuinely engage with it. And this is how social media is weaponized. Like you have a military-industrial complex, there is a kind of disinformation industrial complex. And the only way we're going to defang it is by demonetize it. 
As disinformation networks become more powerful, they influence the messages we hear and how we interact with one another, disrupting democratic discourse. Drawing them out of the shadows and taking down their networks threatens their business model. It shines a light on those who benefit politically from misinformation. In South Africa, we've seen um, the developments of these kinds of networks using xenophobia as, as kind of a, a rallying call, where South Africans believe that Nigerians and Kenyans and Zimbabweans and Mozambicans are taking jobs that, that belong to them. And hitting on very many of the same trigger points that you'll hear in conversations in the U.S. or elsewhere or in Eastern Europe. They're using a playbook that has been proven to work elsewhere. They're dressing it in local language and, and often generating manipulated media to support local clans. Justin says disinformation adds fuel to the fire in countries where there are already electoral coups, religious insurgencies and foreign mercenaries. Trying to fact-check everything is whack-a-mole. It's very worthwhile and we need to do it, but it does not scale because we cannot operate at the same level that these machine-generated hate machines do. Code for Africa coordinates fact-checking teams in more than 170 newsrooms across Africa. Their journalism becomes training data for machine learning tools. We operate across 21 countries, and it's probably in those 21 countries, it's probably half a billion people. And we're the largest organization in this space in Africa doing disinformation work. And we're only 93 people. And you have an outsized impact. I mean, the fact-checking that our fact-checking team, which is only 30 people, produces maybe 2,000 fact-checks a year, which is not a big number. But that in turn has a multiplier impact that just Facebook labels or removes over 6 million posts per year based on those 2,000 fact-checks. Justin acknowledges that this is just a drop in a sea of disinformation. But why is a small nonprofit in Africa working to clean up the platforms of the world's richest internet companies? What should social media companies be doing to fight this problem at scale? I mean, this is glib, but there should be more collaboration, not just between social media companies themselves or technology companies. The platform should be doing more sharing and more joint problem solving to solve a problem that ultimately they've created. So these big platforms should be collaborating with each other, sharing intelligence and mitigating disinformation from spreading from one channel to the other. They'll never be able to be everywhere all the time. And so they need to figure out productive, sustainable ways of collaborating with a wider sense, a set or circle of watchdogs in the media, in fact-checking, in kind of political um, watchdog ecosystems. That last point is important. African countries are diverse in cultures and spoken languages. In Nigeria alone, over 500 languages are spoken. Code for Africa's team speak local languages. They understand local history and geopolitics. They're building giant data sets of media content from the region, and they use AI to supercharge their work. The machine learning tools that we use and the, the natural language processing tools that we use to not just track the use of specific terms, but understand emerging narratives or conversations and the zeitgeist that almost makes people, prepares people to be susceptible to these tropes or these conspiracies that take hold of societies. 
we would be blind to all of that if we didn't have kind of machine learning to be able to analyze millions of online articles and help us spot the trends or the outliers. So we use a lot of tools. Some big platforms do collaborate with and even pay local organizations. But Justin says only the largest fact-checking networks are invited by platforms to partner with them. He believes the work Code for Africa and other researchers do, developing and sharing AI tools, can create a positive ripple effect to empower smaller groups. We need to figure out ways of cascading down these ecosystems and creating kind of layered interactions where grassroots media have access to resources and to techniques and tools, and their work can feed into kind of you know, an ever-cascading app series of more complex organizations who can start using AI and the kinds of technologies that will never be you know, in the reach of people operating down at village level. Justin gives big platforms like Facebook credit for the work they're doing on disinformation, even though he thinks they could be doing more. They at least are doing things that we can see and we can criticize. The problem are the closed channels, the signals, the WhatsApps, where it's invisible, the dark social. Dark social. That sounds much spookier than what I see in my WhatsApp chats with my family. But messaging apps are key vectors of political and electoral disinformation in many countries. Some are end-to-end encrypted. That makes them more secure. But it also makes them harder to study from the outside, especially when companies are not transparent. Part of what was happening in 2018 was that there was a lot of attention on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, WhatsApp had somehow still not come to global attention. But for many of us, uh, like in India and also in other countries, like that was the dominant platform. That's Taranama Prabhakar. She's the research lead and co-founder of the open source project Tattle. That's a community of technologists and researchers in India. They build machine learning tools and datasets to understand and respond to misinformation. They began their work three years ago trying to crack a puzzle. How could they help people verify information on WhatsApp when the company wasn't? On WhatsApp, a lot of the content is in audio-visual format. Uh, You don't necessarily have URLs. You just have images and voice recordings that are shared in the platform. We knew that if you wanted to do any automation, be it around like linking it to a fact check report or um, linking it to content that has been shared in the past, you had to be able to work with the language that content was being shared in as well as the modality, which is whether it's like image, video, audio. So that's where we started with uh, building the sort of machine learning tools to just process the content in the modality and the languages that are used in, in India. And then we also started archiving a lot of this content. So we started archiving content that was circulated on chat apps. We started creating a data set of uh, content that had been fact-checked in India. They collected those fact-checks using a technique called scraping. And the WhatsApp messages were from large public groups. Then they developed a searchable repository for cross-referencing chat messages with the fact-checks. In the process of doing this work, they were stunned by the close connection between hate speech and misinformation. We were collecting, uh, scraping data from some of these other social media platforms. We were just sort of shocked at how much hate speech there was on these platforms and uh, were thinking about why platforms had not addressed these issues. 
but also that before we opened some of this data set for say research or journalistic storytelling we wanted to filter out the hate speech so we found ourselves in a place um where we needed to do content moderation before releasing this data and we didn't have the tools to do it so tattles work expanded to include tools and plugins for moderating content in their own open data sets in hindi tamil and indian english but why haven't the platforms addressed these issues with so much knowledge and research into hate speech and disinformation why is there still so much of it one reason is language our experience with most platforms is that they're just not geared to handle indian languages very well let's talk about content moderators the people whose job it is to see the most gruesome content on the internet part of their job involves labeling content so it becomes training data for automated content moderation this is important work We know from Facebook whistleblowers like Frances Haugen that only a small proportion of moderation happens outside of the US, even though 90% of Facebook users live elsewhere. In other words, most languages are under-resourced, and even for English, there are many different dialects. Even though a lot of Indian social media users will use English, they will use it in a very distinct way with a lot of mixing and matching with regional languages. and using words in ways that you wouldn't use it in american english okay here's a quick question which countries have the most facebook users the answer is india the us and indonesia but the number of users in a place doesn't always mean that a platform is going to be more accountable to them things that are done to protect elections in one place never happen in others and that's true for all platforms Should it be the case that a company has at least a million people speaking a language that no one in the company understands? At the very least, you need to have some people who understand the language and are paying attention to it as their job. Sahar Masachi is the co-founder of the nonprofit Integrity Institute in the US. It's a new member organization for people who work on integrity teams at social media platforms. Sahar worked at Facebook as a data engineer. and developed technical tools to protect elections by showing accurate information to voters. He also looked at real-time dashboards in what they called a war room to identify spikes in misinformation. These can be caused by bots. It's well known that the reshare button is really dangerous or the retweet button. And uh, if a thing is reshared many times, it's very likely to be bad. You could imagine putting in place sort of like speed bumps for that or ways to sort of make it harder to quote tweet a quote tweet or retweet a retweet a retweet that's not technically very hard the real challenge is like arguing about why you should be allowed to launch it and almost 90% of the job could be just sort of diplomacy around being allowed to do the rest of your job by diplomacy sahar means they need to negotiate for changes integrity teams are considered cost centers at odds with other teams focused on growth Your role is to be that inconvenient person who points out why the easy thing or the growth-making thing might not be a good idea. It's a really kind of awkward position to be in. In a company like Facebook, a lot of different teams work on policies and moderation. Integrity work is just one piece of the puzzle. I think it's fair to say that in general, integrity teams are newer and less well-resourced than we would like. Sahar says he's especially proud of the work his team at Facebook did. on the 2018 Brazilian presidential election and US midterm elections 
he acknowledges that there were missteps. But he describes intense periods of work where they grew in terms of skills and capacity. We're pulling 14-hour shifts in this, like, windowless, stinky room. You know, you would, like, build a tool on day one, show up on day two for your shift, and someone had upgraded it. By day five, someone had built a whole new tool that did a better job. You know, by day seven, someone might have actually written up a documentation about how to use it. Sahar said it was rewarding when different parts of the company would pull together. Different teams around the company really cared about it, and you're able to pull them in and say, we really need you to teach us how to use this tool that you built so that we can use it. Or we really need you to change your app or your product temporarily so that it is safer, and they would do it because they really wanted to do the right thing. Companies are secretive about what they do or don't do to fight disinformation. And Sahar says this makes collaboration with outside groups difficult, even when they could really help. He hopes the Integrity Institute will serve as a bridge to the inside. Every company is probably different. One way that companies are different is in the way that they think about the outside world and how comfortable they are for their workers to talk to the outside world. And the level of paranoia or being locked down in one company really can surprise you if you come from a different company. Part of what the Integrity Institute is trying to do is really speak to that and fix that. And we say that we're representing integrity workers so that we are the one place where NGOs and academics and and the rest of the world can come talk to us and then we'll sort of disseminate it to the workers or the integrity professionals who are our members into their day jobs. Let me introduce you to one more person. Rashi Saxena coordinates global contributions to a crowdsourced data set of online hate speech called HateBase through an initiative called the Citizen Linguist Lab. This is all run by the Sentinel Project in Canada, but Rashi works remotely from Bangalore, India. The Citizen Linguist Lab is really for anyone across the board that wants to contribute and amplify and augment our database. We, in many cases, might lack the social, cultural, uh, and linguistic context of things. And who better to contribute than the locals who live in the particular setting? HateBase now covers 98 languages spoken across many countries. They work with hundreds of universities to research the impact of hate speech and misinformation, particularly leading up to elections. Rashi explains the connection like this. Hate speech loads the gun, but misinformation pulls the trigger. Hate speech in itself might not contribute to offline violence, but it kind of sets the tone and the environment of background hostility towards a particular community or ethnicity, and then Rumors in the form of malignant information, harmful information that circulate around that can perhaps lead to election violence. The Sentinel Project has documented this dynamic in numerous countries. In Kenya, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, South Sudan, Sri Lanka, and Myanmar, their mission is to prevent mass atrocities through early warning and cooperation. The global repository of hate speech enables them to perform automated sightings of the offensive terms across the internet. Nearly a million of them. They label terms in a way that lets them take the temperature of conflicts. 
every contributor is called a citizen linguist and they can also help by offering the assessment of the offensiveness of a particular term which is then calculated with all other inputs and this helps us to sort of crowdsource sentimental analysis and acts as one part of the output uh, for the system so the offensiveness rating kind of helps us to understand the social and political environment The data can be accessed by local and human rights groups free of charge, while big platforms can pay for access. It's a resource to help moderate online conversations. It's designed to keep people safer in real life. With important elections taking place around the world, it is vital that platforms get a handle on disinformation. This isn't something that any one company can handle alone. it can't be solved in secrecy with content moderation algorithms or underpaid and unprotected moderators we need companies to practice meaningful transparency so they can collaborate better with each other and local groups this would empower researchers to uncover harmful disinformation that transcends platforms languages and media ecosystems and those policies that platforms create for transparency and safety during elections they shouldn't just apply in some countries They should apply everywhere. This is IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla, the nonprofit behind Firefox. This season of IRL doubles as the Internet Health Report. You can read more about our guests and AI by visiting internethealthreport.org. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks so much for listening. For more on what can be done, look up Mozilla's minimum election standards for platforms. Thank you.